This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Wong Xiaoning together in the studio with Philip C. Welcome back. At Philip, we haven't Thank seen you. you in a while. I know, I was cavorting all around Singapore. <laughs> like half of Malaysia. Uh, it's 6 a.m. <laughs> Wednesday, the 13th of July. And uh, tell me, what did you observe in Singapore? It's expensive. Yes, it's of course. It's expensive. It's three point one five to the ringgit, by the way, and that uh, is the reason why Johor is Johor businesses are complaining. Booming. Well, they're complaining because they they all their workers are moving to Singapore to work. It's very true. I was just taking. I had to take Grab everywhere. It was super expensive. Like I was just taking a Grab also in KL yesterday, and I found out it's like really one third the price. Literally one third. Yes. Wow. In Malaysia versus Singapore. It's really expensive. But of course, I had a great time, ate a lot of food. But don't worry, I did not eat the chicken rice there. The chicken rice is actually the best in Singapore. I'm going to be crucified for saying that. Actually, really? By the way. Yes, yes. I would Why say so? It just is. You, you can roll up <laughs> anywhere and the chicken rice standard is very high. That is not the case for everything else, okay, by the way. Yeah. The nasi lemak ain't great. The char kway teow ain't great. I, I said at Katong, I didn't touch the Katong laksa by any stretch of any imagination. Actually, the Katong laksa isn't bad too. Okay, oh, I'm going to be crucified. Say, you're going to be crucified whatever you say now. <laughs> yeah, everyone's going, oh no. <laughs> she has no taste whatsoever. Yeah, she's... <laughs> Her palate has been destroyed. Yeah, what happened? How can she say Singapore food is good? No, but to be fair, Singapore restaurant food is good. Mm. I mean, of course, their strong dollar does allow for importation of the best quality stuff. And also they have a high, you know, a lot of... Uh, Chefs out there. That is true. I had this black cod miso soup. Wow, of course, so atas. I didn't pay for it, of course. <laughs> was so and atas. it was pretty affordable, that one. But of course, I just saw the price, but my friend paid for it instead. Did you faint? Did you do times of three? Of course. Yeah, I, I fainted, but I didn't <laughs> faint for very long. I recovered quite fast. Okay. But as usual, we have a very packed show this morning at uh, 7.15 we're going to ask whether uh, another love affair has ended and that's between Pass and Bersatu. We're going to ask Adip Zalkapi, director of, of Bauer Group Asia, that question. And don't cash your chips just right in because at 7.30 we discuss whether the impact of earnings on Macau's casinos that have been closed for a week. Angela Hanley, equity research analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, gives her insights. And then at 7.45, uh, what we do know is that the life expectancy um, in Malaysia has increased to 75.6 years. Okay, this is according to the Department of Statistics. But more importantly, what impact should there be on policy making with regards to our economy, health and even social protection? And that question we're going to ask Dr. Juwita Mohammed, Director of Economics and Business and Acting Research Director at Ideas. And we saw just about a couple of days ago, right, our population has hit past the 33 million mark, 33.3 yeah. million. So we better wake up literally and make some adjustments to our policy, right, because we are heading into an ageing population. Uh, but up next, we've got Dry the Rain by Beta Ban. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9609 and that was... Dry the rain. Wasn't it weird? A bit. Why would you dry rain? It just doesn't impossible, make sense. Impossible, right? It's impossible. Well, it does. It eventually evaporates, right? The sun evaporates <laughs> it. Okay, we're getting into the okay, weeds. Okay, getting into the weeds. But oh, anyway, um, we've got an interesting story that you chose, right? Yes, was it? yes. Um, and this it, is about superstition. Yeah, it talks about whether rituals will bring you success. That's the big question here. You know, for us, many of us here, we hear about all these very successful people and then they tend to share with us their 
weird rituals. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially for CEOs, they say, oh, one of their rituals is I always wake up early at three in the morning and meditate. And on that basis, all of us should make ourselves great CEOs then. On the yeah, basis that we always wake so early. Right? Automatically. Yeah. I should be a great CEO on that basis. But I think this is the big question. There's so many of these unconnected events or things we do that we tend to associate and link to another outcome that perhaps isn't so correlated. Yeah. But um, so before the break or during the break, actually, you and I had a little bit of a chat, right, about this BBC article and we discussed our odd rituals that we do. And I think the point is you're right. that These rituals don't guarantee success, but they perhaps sometimes put us in the right frame of mind yeah. uh, and uh, enable us to have the confidence to carry out the task that is ahead. And I think that's why these rituals matter. So, and that task could be anything, you know. So, for example, we talked about sleep, right? Because um, they did refer to... Uh, Ar- yeah, she's the CEO of Thrive Global. And she is a big queen, a big queen proponent of sleep. And she has this bedtime ritual, which she turns off all mobile devices and escorts them out of the room. And the purpose of that, if you ask me, is so that she can achieve a good, whatever, six, seven, eight hours of sleep. Hmm. So that's the point, right? You do something to achieve a certain outcome. And even for you, you said for you, one of the rituals you do is you read a chapter of a book before you sleep. It's perhaps a very important cue to say, okay, my mind is ready to step down, walk down the ladder and relax a bit. So I think these rituals are quite vital cues to lead you to the next step. And perhaps that's why we always make fun and mock of all these CEOs that do all these weird rituals like Bill Gates with his yellow pad or even uh, tennis superstars like Rafael Nadal. Mm. He wants to put his tumbler in a specific location. That, I guess, shows or sets you up for that winning mindset for the next outcome. It may not correlate, but it sets you up. Perhaps we look at it from a phasing standpoint. Yes, I mean... A sequence. Even when I look at this morning in the studio... Right, how I set up myself before I go on the show. And if you guys notice, there is a certain ritual mm. in terms of how I organize myself, right? So on my right is always the Bloomberg. I always have a notepad on the right with a with a pen. I have, you know, two I have one mouse on the, slightly to the left, another mouse on the right, I've got my phone to my left. You know, everything is is in a way it's to optimize the next task ahead so that you work best. But what happens if there's a disruption to the ritual? What happens if the terminal isn't pushed that certain way or that notepad isn't there? Are we then disrupted? Do a little we, bit. Are we then not able to function properly? And that's, I think, the biggest worry because we then rely too much on these external cues that then gives us the lack of confidence to execute what we can do actually without it. Yeah, which is an important point, right? So you need to adjust that mind where you can say, okay, I can deal with a certain amount of flexibility, a certain amount of change to my patterns. It's okay. Mm. Um, Nothing bad is going to happen. I can recover very easily. And yeah, for someone like me, and I would confess, I am really the queen of OCD. You all know that very Mm. well, right? I'm the person that... we know. Yeah. I'm the person that arranges (laughs) all all my shoes by colour, my clothes by colour, sleeve lengths. I'm quite precise that way. And so my mind is set, it's like that, and it's not a good thing. 
it is not always a good thing because I don't know how to embrace changes that come away come my way and be flexible to them. Well, we talk about this whole world of VUCA, right? Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. How do you basically live a rigid life when you're demanded, when it's demanded on you to be agile, when it's demanded for you to be flexible? And, you know, perhaps you can't read that chapter the night before because you have so much on your plate. Yeah. Does that stop you from sleeping well? It shouldn't. It and shouldn't. you know what? COVID-19 has thrown us the ultimate curveball in life, right? Absolutely. So the thing is, some rituals help, some rituals don't. But I think in life, you just need to be flexible. Uh, but up next, we've got some messages. And to take us out is The Suburbs by Arcade Fire. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. 6.20 Wednesday, the 13th of July. And of course, you're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Wong Shaoning together with Philip C. And that song was The Suburbs by Arcade Fire. Now, some of you all might be leaving your suburbs and heading to work. Hope you have a safe drive into town. It doesn't look like it's going to rain today, so a bit of good news there. Uh, but up next, we've got this interesting story from Fast Company and also chosen by the one and only Philip C. <laughs> uh, it's entitled Japan Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's Legacy of Womanomics. Not Abenomics, but Womanomics. That's right. I mean, just to give a recap, um, President... Uh, Prime Minister uh, Shinzo Abe, I think, was assassinated at uh, end of last week. Um, I think the funeral took place yesterday. And he has had a very deep, impress- deep impression on Japan's uh, population and e- country, especially on its economic side. On the abenomic side, it was based on those three arrows, monetary easing, fiscal stimulus and structural reforms, those mm. three arrows. But I think he's also well known for pushing for greater women participation in the workforce. And during his tenure, he did add additional 2 million more women into the workforce. But there are still questions whether enough progress was made on this front. Yeah, so Fast Company says that womanomics, in a way, has fallen far short of the stated goals, right? And yes, there were some triumphs. So there was a rise in female employment by several percentage points. Uh, but unfortunately, COVID-19 has changed that and, and has actually reversed that trend. Now, I think it's a lot to do also with just Japanese society or even Asian society, whether women are and feel empowered to go out there and work. Do they have the policies in place to encourage uh, greater women participation in the workforce? And the answer is actually no. The numbers speak for itself. I mean, womenomics targeted to have about 30% of women in management positions by 2020. The reality is that only about 11% of board positions are filled by women. So that goes to show the amount of progress still required. And Japan is particularly behind. If you compare to uh, peers in the OECD, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, that number stands about 27%, still woefully low. Mm. I think there is a point that government can do so much to encourage more women participation in the workforce. It has to deal with society, it has to get private sector, private companies, institutions to get involved and actively pushing for this reform. Yeah, so we've had these discussions on air with many commentators on a Malaysian perspective, right? So, I mean, the conclusions I can draw is that one, the conversations need to change in the household, right? That's Mm. one. The conversations also need to change in schools because then you do away with gender stereotyping. Yep. Then the conversations need to happen in with policymakers, with lawmakers in parliament to enact uh, employment acts, which are I would say non-discriminatory. So, for example, even until today, you know, companies can ask you whether you intend to have children, whether you intend to take maternity leave before they employ you, and I don't think that's a fair question. If anything, all companies should encourage women if they want; it is their choice to 
to have children and maternity leave is an entitlement. I have seen before and experienced before many companies ask, "Have are you planning to have children? Mm. And that seems to be really smacking of sexism in my view. Yes, because it it's, a, it's a question that's unique to the woman. Yeah. And, you know, certain things also need to change. I think uh, conversations need to be held, not just with women, but also with men. Right, because we leave them out in this conversation, and their role is also equally important if they are part of a household. Because the duty of work, of let's say anything to do with the family, should not reside with just one person. So let's think about stepping back. Right, the pandemic has set back this whole cause and agenda a couple of years back. Going forward, now we're seeing a very hot labor market. We're seeing rising inflation, a lot of pressure towards dual income kind of positions. Do you think we're going to see women catapult and move faster back into the workforce? Simply not because because they want to, but because they have to? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope that we are brave enough to have these conversations in the house to begin with. And also that women have a sense of entitlement that this is something I can do, I want to do for myself. And why can't I do it? And, you know, uh, what's standing in my way? And that, you know, the firstly, the, the man, if they're in a partnership, is encouraging them. Or even if they're a single woman, this is something that they want. Why, why should society stop them? Why should laws stop them? So then the question here really is, how do countries push this forward? Like someone like Japan with an ageing population, they need to drive greater productivity. Naturally, governments must push for greater women participation. But to what extent? To uh, the full extent. <laughs> to me, 110%. We need to get out there. We need to be seen. We need to be heard. Uh, but up next, we've got the 6.30am news bulletin. And to take us there is So In Love by... O- OMD. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9 and that song was When Did Your Heart Go Missing by Rooney. You can dedicate this to all the ex-boyfriend <laughs> girlfriends out there. It's 6.39 in the morning, Wednesday the 13th of July. And at this time of the, of the day, we are going to look through all the international headlines that have caught our eyes. So... I cast the net to you, Philip. Well, we talk about going missing. I hope your baggage hasn't gone missing in Europe because there's chaos across all European airports happening over this summer. And just last night, London Heathrow Airport is capping the number of departing passengers at 100,000 a day. They're asking airlines to stop selling tickets because the airport just cannot con cope with the congestion happening at the airports. And this is being reported in every news portal, right? I think it's in the Wall Street Journal, it's in The Guardian. But my question is, why? I mean, I thought everybody is dying for a recovery, right? Uh, COVID-19, hooray, the borders are reopened. What's happening? Is Again, it is a lack of workers? It's or? a lack of workers, lack of baggage handlers. You've seen the pictures. You've seen pictures on Twitter about all these baggages being lost. If I think last week you saw at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport, long queues yeah. heading into the check-in counters and terminals. It's crazy. Well, so even if airlines want to you know, t- take advantage of this recovery in passengers, they can't because they're just not allowed to, uh, to depart or arrive. Yes, yes. So just to be clear, for Heathrow, I think the affected terminals are 2, 3, 5. I don't think Terminal 4 is affected, which is where Malaysia Lines operate. So, but do check in with the airlines, I think, to understand whether or not your flights have been disrupted. Okay, and I've got another interesting news. Uh, this is from the Financial Times. And guess what? Fake news is not only prevalent in Malaysia, it's everywhere because there's a <laughs> fake US inflation report which circulates a day ahead of data release. So I, I, I always wonder who comes up with all this. You know, who creates all this like uh, documents, it's fake just to documents, create all this unnecessary hype, yeah. which then creates so much volatility in the markets. Who's so free? 
<laughs> yeah, like why? Unless you want to game the market because they know that all these kind of uh, reports, you know, trigger all these responses right in the market. Perhaps, but um, I don't know. I always think, well, the point is basically you need to check, 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 check and verify. And you know what? In US, economic releases are very precise. They are released on a certain date at a certain time. So if it comes out earlier, you should always be a little bit suspicious. So one credible source, though, is the IMF. And they've just came out yesterday night. They've cut their monthly forecast for US GDP, saying that avoiding a recession is increasingly challenging. And they now see unemployment rate exceeding 5% in 2024, 2025. They reduced their GDP targets from 2.9% originally projected last month to this month being 2.3% this year. Not a good sign. Now, another piece of news from the Singapore Straits Times. They have reported that Sri Lankan President Gotabaya Rajapaksa has fled the country on a military aircraft. So, seventy-three, the 73-year-old leader and his wife and a bodyguard were among the four passengers and apparently they are heading to the Maldives. So, we discussed this yesterday on our show. Um, you can listen to that. It's entitled, Power Vacuum in Sri Lanka Adds to More Woes. And really, there is a crisis brewing there. Yeah, so I guess the question now is, will IMF bail out? And there's always this debate about China also stepping in and supporting them. What is the, what is going to happen now when you are a leaderless country, right? Because there are negotiations taking place with all these creditors about how you restructure your debt and such. So I wonder what happens next when, when there is no government in place. Well, yesterday in a conversation with Dr. Chulani Atanayaka, who is at the NUS National University of Singapore, she says the constitution does provide for the speaker to step up because the prime minister's resigned, the president's resigned, right? So the next in line is the speaker of house. But after 30 days, parliament will reconvene and they will then choose a, basically as a vote of confidence as to who commands the majority of the house, very similar to us actually. Right. And then they will proceed from there. But the problem is the opposition among themselves. There's they're not a lot united. Of, they're not united. There's a lot of infighting. So what's really going to happen? And as we know, there's a fuel crisis. There's a food crisis. There's a medicine crisis. All these items are in very short supply. So not a good situation. Not for a good them. situation. And let's just go back to the root cause to this crisis, which was the fuel crisis you talked about. And just uh, overnight, a global energy crisis may get worse, according to Fateh Birol, the head of the International Energy Agency. Quote: The world has never witnessed such a major energy crisis in terms of its depth and its complexity. We might not have seen the the worst of it yet, this is affecting the entire world. For sure, but uh, a little bit of good news. Brand crude this morning below $100 a barrel, a bit of easing there. Uh, but also, you know, let's be a bit more Debbie Downer this morning because Bloomberg is reporting, unfortunately. Uh, WHO chief warns of rising infections, deaths from new COVID wave. So guys, it's still here. Please continue wearing your mask, washing your hands, practicing some form of physical distancing. Life has returned somewhat to normal, but unfortunately, you still it's still out there. So get your booster jabs. I mean, that's true. I mean, you're seeing these COVID surges taking place, especially in China. And I think that's why Chinese financial markets yesterday really saw a significant downsell as we saw more COVID shutdowns take place all across the country yesterday. Yeah. Uh, one more piece of news, and this is from The Guardian. Emmanuel Macron, you know, okay, a little bit of a backstory. The Guardian revealed all these allegations about Uber, right? Uh, lobbying, paying off academics, politicians. But uh, they've gone to Emmanuel Macron. Apparently, he's proud of supporting Uber's lobbying drive in France. He said he'll do it again tomorrow hmm. and the day after tomorrow. 
And I think Uber is a very interesting case because I think you see this whole push for lobbying by them, not only in Europe, but in Asia, especially in Malaysia as well, when it originally had started operations well, in the beginning. Well, they did actually... Um, I guess, try to buy, well, is, is the right word buy, or gain influence with some media outlets, I think, uh, be it in Italy, even in India. So, you know, this is something interesting in terms of uh, how much power, you well, money and power go hand in hand, right, when you try and gain influence. Uh, but up next, we've got some messages. Uh, keep it here, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9 and that was Pale Shelter by Tears for Fears. It's 6.51 Wednesday the 13th of July and at this time of the morning we're looking through all the local papers, portals and I know Philip's dying to go. I'm not dying to go but hey, we have this really interesting headline <laughs> that caught my attention. It's raining men Where? in Malaysia. Where? Everywhere, everywhere. Where? But- Where? Where? <laughs> <laughs> it's particularly in Malaysia. Are you going to burst out in song or shall I do that? Well, no. We're not going to do a replay of what Jerry <laughs> Halliwell or the Weather Girls did. But I think this story reflects the fact that there's an influx of male foreign workers, the reason behind the widening male-female ratio. According to the statistics department, what you're seeing now is that from 102 males to every 100 males uh, in 1970 has gone up now to about 110 males for every 100 males in 2020. Okay, do we need to then change uh, policy as a result? I mean, it's just like, you know, because the population is aging. Uh, well, something to consider. Uh, other news I have is from the HCEO Morning Brief. And it's actually reported in almost all the papers. And that was because yesterday, um, Employees Provident Fund EPF is targeting 300 contributors to take advantage of the iLindung platform that was launched um, within the first year. So basically, you can start with a premium as low as 30 ringgit per annum and the total coverage offered for Air Lindung is 10,000 ringgit. So this comes under the Members Protection Plan to facilitate the purchase of insurance and takaful products consisting of life and critical illness protection at an affordable premium from account two. I mean, the logic behind here is that, honestly, half of Malaysia's populations really do not have the additional savings to pay for medical expenses. So uh, the goal with this withdrawal is to make sure that that is that protection. Of course, we have this debate. Should we allow more withdrawals to take place? And of course, naturally, if it's being used for these purposes, perhaps it's okay. Yeah, it is. I mean, because if you look at the insurance penetration rate in the country, it's still very low. It's only 56.1% for insurance in Takaful. Uh, and I think that this this whole I Lindong is really targeted at those in the lowest forty percent monthly income mm. group, or the B forty who don't have any form of insurance whatsoever. And we've had this discussion about the rising cost of healthcare. Right? Yesterday we just had it with Dr. Kujit Singh, who's the president of the Private Healthcare Association, and inflation is biting into insurance into healthcare costs. On average, you're talking about seven to eight percent per annum. So having a form of insurance policy does help. So this is a good move by the government then, you think, that we at least are able to provide some protection for those yes, who really can't I, afford I, it? Of course, I think you all know I'm not keen on withdrawing from EPF unless you really need to, unless it's for a legitimate reason. So whether it's for house, education, I think this is another legitimate reason to consider. On another more uh, worrying note, uh, headline on the star, page four, severe doc shortage may get worse. Ending scholarship bonds can lead to a mass exodus of contract doctors. So the shortage of medical doc officers in the national healthcare system may take a turn for the worse due to changes in policy. Oh. 
So I think this is a bit of a problem. I think we've seen this whole issue about contract doctors before in the past. This is not a uniquely Malaysian issue, but it seems to be getting worse. It was even reported in the Straits Times Singapore about two days ago that already private hospitals are seeing doctor shortages there. Well, didn't we have a surplus of doctors at one time? I mean, we had all these contract doctors that had no certainty in terms of their career, right? So what... what, what yeah, why the why, sudden U-turn? Why yeah. the sudden change in trend, I think, is the question mark here. Yeah, we went from having too many to now having not enough. Yeah, have they moved outside of Malaysia and, you know, operated in other jurisdictions? Perhaps is one way of do, looking at it. I'm not sure. I don't think we'll have the answer straight away. Uh, we do need to dig deep, deeper on this. I think this is something that we should follow up. Uh, but I've got a headline from Malaysia Insight, and this is actually a Financial Times story that was re- that was that come that came out yesterday afternoon around Malaysian time, maybe around one two o'clock in the afternoon. But it's now being reported, of course, in all our local portals. So the headline is: Petrona says Azerbaijan assets sold earlier despite seizure over Sulu dispute. This is over this arbitration that is going on in Europe. And it's, it's a bit complex if you ask me the story. Um, but this is something we'll probably be following up tomorrow, actually. Yeah, just to give you a bit of a background, the self-proclaimed heirs of the Sulu Sultanate claim to have seized the assets of two Petronas companies in Luxembourg, but questions have been raised over the so-called seizure. So the, the company in question really is Petronas' Azerbaijan's 15.5% stake in the largest gas field, Chardonnay's, in the Caspian Sea. But that was already sold, apparently, to the Azerbaijani oil company Soka, right, which brought 4.35%, BP at 1.6%, and Russia Lukoil at about 10%. Yeah, so what happens next? We don't know, right? And uh, what is Petronas planning to do? Uh, we'll try and find out um, as this story unfolds. But that's all the local news we have for you. Up next, we've of course got the 7am news bulletin. And to take us there is Heroes by David Bowie. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.